0: Hello everyone and welcome to Lending News You Can Use. In this podcast series, we provide news or discussions on legal issues in the Canadian finance space. My name is Corey Williams and I'm a partner in the Financial Services Group at Dentons Toronto. Today's episode is relevant to any secured lender in Canada lending money to any entity that has material contracts that a lender is ascribing value to, such as a critical supply contract or a license to produce goods like pharmaceuticals. Today we are talking about assignments of those material contracts, when specific assignments are required, and what to do if you can't get them. Joining me today are John Salamis, a partner of our Restructuring Insolvency and bankruptcy Group at Dentons Toronto, as well as Alessandro Bozzelli, a Senior Associate in the Financial Services Group at Dentons Toronto. Hello, gentlemen. So, Alessandro, why don't you break it down for our listeners? A general security agreement grants a security interest in all of a debtor's present and after acquired assets. Those assets would include contractual rights. Why does a lender need to do anything more than get a general security agreement?
1: Well, thanks for having me uh, here today, Corey. To answer your question, there are a variety of reasons why a lender may want something more than a simple general security agreement where that agreement is very important to the lender. First, In addition to the filing of a PPSA financing statement, the underlying contract will typically require notice to or consent from the counterparty. Second, with some material contracts, such as in project finance, a specific three-party agreement is desirable in order to more particularly delineate the rights and responsibilities of each of the parties. It's important to keep in mind that outside of project finance, where three-party agreements are common and readily given, lenders are likely to run into certain practical issues, obtaining consents or three-party agreements from material contract counterparties. For example, similar to the issue which arises in respect of landlord agreements, which we've discussed in a previous podcast, there is no economic incentive for a counterparty to give consent to the assignment of the the material contract or enter into a three-party agreement. So it's usually difficult to get them to the negotiating table.
0: And it's also worth mentioning that many borrowers don't actually want uh, their counterparties being made aware of this. So they don't actually want lenders approaching these counterparties looking for consent. So Alessandro, how do you know if consent is required under a material contract and what happens if you don't get it?
1: Those are two great questions, Corey. So to answer your first question, you have to look at the underlying material contract. Contracts will typically have an assignment provision which will create the framework under which the contract may or may not be assigned by the parties to that agreement. If the provision explicitly prohibits the contract from being assigned a security, there is typically an ability for one party to request that the contract be assigned and for the counterparty to provide its consent to such assignment. To answer your second question, if the contract is not assignable and or the counterparty does not want to provide its consent to the assignment, General security agreements typically contain a provision that specifically excludes from the document, the granting of a security interest over any contractual right, to the extent that a security interest would constitute a breach of that material contract. So John, how would
0: a court view an assignment by way of a general security agreement if it had such an express anti-assignment clause like Alessandro mentioned?
2: Thanks, Corey and Alessandro. That's a very interesting question. Um, Let me just start off by, um, Uh, stating that the method by which the court process would unfold. Uh, So while we're talking about a contract here between, uh, or a general security agreement that involves a a lender and a debtor, the actual um, uh, process would be by way of court appointed receiver. Uh, So a lender would actually seek to apply to court, to to appoint a court appointed receiver uh, over the assets of its debtor. Uh, And in the Toronto marketplace, uh, there's a commercial list users committee, uh a committee that's banded together to create forms of receivership orders and those orders include uh, the court appointed officers ability to take possession and control of the property of the debtor which would include debtors contractual interests so in terms of um judicial declarations there, there would be no upfront day one judicial declaration in respect of the purported assignment by way of security over a contract with an anti-assignment clause or the impact thereof, you'd have to really have an antagonist to the, or an antagonist to the receiver's protagonist, i.e. the contractor counterparty at a future court appearance, seeking to argue that a receiver is not able to assign a contract to a third party on the basis that the underlying security agreement also didn't give purview over that contract because that contract had a non-assignability clause but that won't be usually a, an issue that would be grappled with on day one. Uh, that, uh, those kinds of anti-assignment agreements we see frequently in license agreements, franchise agreements, distribution agreements, supply agreements, uh, JV agreements. And so when we see those in the insolvency context, the general advice of insolvency practitioners would be that to the extent that those contracts are material to the overall business of the debtor, the advice would be to have the debtor actually file for a debtor proceeding, as opposed to uh, have the proceeding unfold by way of a secured creditor enforcement or appointment of court-appointed officer, court-appointed receiver. And the reason for that is under the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act and the Company's Creditors Arrangement Act, uh, there are provisions which allows debtors and trustees in bankruptcy, as opposed to receivers, the ability to sign to assign contracts. And that ability exists if. Uh, it's approved by the court-appointed officer um, whether the proposed assignee is an entity that can perform the contractual obligations uh, and whether it is just and appropriate to do so, i.e. to have the contracts be assigned. So prior to recently, the, that, the advice in that universe would be to have a creditor-sponsored debtor proceeding by which the debtor itself could utilize for contractual, uh, uh, statutory provisions under the BIA TCAA to effectuate uh, the assignment of the contracts.
1: Thanks for that, John. I'm uh, I'm going to read you two boilerplate provisions that we see in many in many contracts, um, and then w- we'll let you give us your thoughts. First one is: neither party to this agreement shall assign this agreement or any portion thereof without the prior written consent of the other party. And the second one is. This agreement shall be binding upon the parties hereto and their successors and permitted assigns. Now, the traditional view of many lending lawyers is that both of these clauses, whether intentionally or unintentionally, prohibit both outright assignments and assignments by way of security, and would therefore result in that, in that material contract falling outside the scope of a general security agreement. In your view, how would a court view those clauses in an enforcement proceeding?
2: So this is an interesting question, and prior to December of last year, my answer would have been, um, the answer would have been unclear. And the reason for that is, while there is that um, standardized uh, receivership order, there's no clear roadmap under that order in respect of the receiver's ability to assign contracts, especially contracts that uh, are not under their terms otherwise assignable. Uh, and because the receiver um, under the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act or under the Courts of Justice Act would not have any statutory framework to make those kinds of assignments, uh, as, for example, debtors would, as we mentioned earlier, uh, it, it was a bit of a uh, gray area in insolvency law. In December, right before Christmas, there was a decision by the Ontario Superior Court of Justice in the Urban Court matter, in which, in that case, the court uh, was of the view that despite there being a lack of statutory, uh, express statutory provisions uh, in favor of court appointed receiver to assign the contract in that case, uh, the, the judge looked at uh, the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act section 243 and the Court of Justice Act section 100 to say that there's provisions that are broad enough to authorize a court appointed receiver to um, seek from a court and for a court to grant an assignment order. So that was the first real case of note that um, stood for that proposition, and that was based on uh, the judge's view that th- there should be a harmonization uh, of results in debtor proceedings versus secured creditor enforcement process. Th- that case is a bit fact specific on some level because it was, um, and the the the, le- the the it was a lease agreement, and the landlord and the tenant were both intercorporate debtors, so they were related to each other, uh, and so there is some level of you know could that result have been different? or would the judge have uh, opined differently, uh, but for the fact of the related party aspects in that case. Uh, But there is um, at least a ruling that's a building block. And as far as I understand, there's been no case since that has um, expanded the thinking from the December decision, uh, but that that it stands for proposition that the court held that if a court appointed officer is not allowed to assign a contract regardless of an, uh, an assignability clause, it, it could potentially um, severely restrict a court appointed officer's ability to discharge its role, and it would not um, uh, confer with the uh, objectives of Canadian solvency laws and frustrate receiverships. Um, in that case, the judge also made it clear that it, it was um, incumbent on the receiver to seek uh, the counterparty's consent, notwithstanding the non assignability clause, um, uh, but that that case does stand at least on some proposition as a roadmap of so long as the result is not materially prejudicial to the contractual counterparty in that case a landlord because there's no contractual amendments being sought and because in that case the related party landlord had an ability to assert a claim uh, against a uh, allocation of purchase uh, price proceeds Uh, the court weighed the uh, possible um, prejudice versus the actual end result which was beneficial to the stakeholders broadly uh, as a roadmap to
1: allow the contract to be assigned well that's certainly an interesting case it, it sounds it sounds like the ultimate result uh, will turn on the specific factual circumstances of the case John thanks very much for joining us today
0: thank you Thanks for joining us for Lending News You Can Use. Please note that we've distilled complicated concepts for the ease of the listener. And if you need any specific advice or have any questions on a lending issue, feel free to reach out to us. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our podcast series.